And welcome aboard. Charles Moskowitz here. Thanks for joining me, everyone. Monday through Friday, 12 noon, here live at YouTube and at subscribing um, platforms for the uh, podcast. And my guest is uh, Dr. Robert Royal. He is the founder and president of the Faith and Reason Institute in Washington, D.C. He's the editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, an online publication that appears daily and is translated into five languages. Robert, thanks for joining me today. It's good to be with you. Now, Robert, your latest book, Columbus and the Crisis of the West, is what brought you to my attention. And the reason I'm interested is because it was not that long ago that my teenage daughter came home from high school and informed me that Christopher Columbus was a genocidal maniac and that um, he had brutally murdered Native Americans. And she just had a, a very, very nasty vision of Columbus, which, of course, was the opposite of what I always thought as being the father of Western, uh, of, of Western civilization in the New World. Uh, what is going on with that teaching? And, um, and, and, and obviously, this teaching that she received did not lead to my being surprised at all when I saw Columbus statues being recently attacked. Well, give us a little balance in terms of um, the, the biography of Christopher Columbus. Well, I'm not surprised that she actually had that experience because that's been a, a, a line of indoctrination, I don't think is too strong a word to call it, that's been um, in our schools, in our public institutions for at least the last 30 years. I actually wrote an earlier version of this book um, called 1492 and all that in 1992, at the 500th anniversary. And already back then, things were starting to get quite radicalized. Um, Berkeley was proclaiming Indigenous Peoples Day, which was a very far out thing to do back then. Now it's become almost mainstream. But I'm not surprised by this either, uh, because for a long time we have not really been studying history, our, our own American history. Students know very little about right. founding, about the Civil War. I mean, the key points in our history. And in terms of Columbus, I think that what has happened is there's been an effort to kind of dump onto him who is, as you rightly say, the person who really gives us the Americas. He's the person, back then they used to say, well, he didn't discover the Americas. It was an encounter of two different civilizations. Well, look, he did discover the Americas. The indigenous <laughs> peoples knew who they were. They, they lived in this area. Of course, they knew how to handle themselves in, in this, these continents. But they didn't know there were other continents. And the other continents didn't know about the Americas. And so Columbus really gave us I like to say he gave us the world. He gave us the whole unified world that we now all live in. And I think that you have to look at him. There's this tendency to overgeneralize, as if he is the same as, say, Pizarro, who was a genocidal maniac. Columbus has been called worse than Hitler by Indian leaders. People talk about him killing millions of indigenous peoples. This is simply nonsense. I mean, how would you kill millions of people anyway back, back in, in those days? In there really weren't even millions of people in, in the New World. Well, there, there, you know, there is revisionist uh, demography that's being done. Maybe there were millions, maybe that there weren't. It is true that many Native peoples, and in fact, whole tribes and villages and whatnot, were wiped out by diseases. But that's not anyone's fault. I mean, this is, if somebody had come from Wuhan, China, in 1492 to the New World, it yeah. would have equally wiped out. That's right. There wasn't, and many Europeans were wiped out by the import of um, bubonic plague from uh, by by Genghis Khan. Right. 
Right. You know, people, this is a history of disease. People don't have immunity to uh, various illnesses when they were introduced. So look, I would start with a, a generalization of my own. These are people in our educational system, in the media, elsewhere, who would like to point to Christopher Columbus and say that he's the beginning of everything bad that occurred on these shores. Right. And I'm going to say, if you're going to make that overgeneralization, then you would also logically have to say, he's also the source of all the good things that happened on these shores for the last 500 years. No one's going to get, grant him that. And so I don't think we should pile on this person who was primarily an explorer. He was not a, an exploiter. He came to the new world to evangelize, number one. He was a very serious Christian. Mm -hmm. um, he also came to the new world in the hope of setting up a kind of a trading post initially. Now, later on, it was clear that there wasn't all that much in the Caribbean that they could trade. So he started to set up agricultural colonies. And it is true that there were times when he didn't know how to handle either indigenous peoples or Spaniards. And I think that needs to be emphasized. He would be kind of indulgent toward them. And then things would get out of hand. And yes, he'd have to hang some Indians and hang some Spaniards as well. So he wasn't very good as a governor. And we have to recognize that about him. He, he didn't really know how to keep order and, and run an orderly operation. However, that wasn't his primary interest. His primary interest was an, as an explorer and, and, and an evangelizer. And we have to say he was one, one of the most amazing people in that regard. And that's what we remember him for, just as we remember Jefferson for the Declaration and Washington for being not slave owners, but for being the fathers of our country. And, and that's how I always thought of Columbus. And I think that the reason he's under assault today by people who, I would say, primarily trace their ancestry back to Europe, by, by the way, and by the way, Native Americans as well are better off today probably because of Columbus, certainly. But putting that aside, um, that he is under attack because he introduced Western Judeo-Christian civilization to the New World and created an incredible civilization here. Uh, the uh, specific attack, which I think is completely, most likely mostly false, but I need to ask you about it, is that he all he cared about was gold and that he was trying to he would cut people's hands off if they didn't give him gold was is there anything is that a, a, a as they would say in my world a booby miser or is there truth to that no look i think there's a lot of mythology in this yeah um, it, it is true that some of the early spanish had had a, kind of a gold tax and it was tiny it was like a tiny little hawk's bell because they thought there was a lot of gold in the Caribbean. It turned out there wasn't all that much. And there were cruel and, and exploitative, exploitative Europeans, uh, primarily Spaniards, who did come and do things like that. Columbus himself was a very different type of character. Bartolome de las Casas was a Dominican. Yes. You probably know about him. Sure. And everyone uniformly refers to him as the defender of the Indians because he actually went back to Spain and was in, instrumental in getting laws passed to protect indigenous peoples. He helped convince the Pope at the time to publish an encyclical that said that indigenous peoples should not be enslaved or mistreated. Even if they're being evangelized, they should be evangelized in a peaceful and respectful way. That's De, La, De Las Casas. He knew right. Columbus. And I say very early on in the new version of my book that he regarded him as a noble and sweet-tempered human being. So now he says, he did make some mistakes, but he says, I would not question his motives because I knew him and I knew his motives were good. 
You contrast this with, as you rightly say, the mostly white young people who stomped on Columbus's statue after, after it was pulled down in Milwaukee and elsewhere, who know absolutely nothing about him and just assume that because he was one of the early explorers, he must have been as bad as anybody else who ever came along afterward. Look, people were as different in 1492 as they are today. You're different from me. I'm different from the next person. Some of us are more violent. Some of us are criminals. Some of us are saintly. We, we can't simply uh, blacken everyone's reputation because some bad things happened after what Columbus actually did here. I think that he, he would have been horrified by much of what happened as much as we are today. But it was a different world, too. Right. And also, we have to view people in the context of the time and the history where they lived. And, um, you know, now we have people basically and predictably wanting to tear down statues of George Washington because he owned slaves. And, you know, this was an institution at the time that was existed all over the world. It existed in Africa. It existed in Asia. It existed in China. This was, you know, it was kind of a uh, something that was part of the firmament in the world at the time. And that to single someone out and judge them for that, there's something more going on there. What they're doing is they're attacking Western values. Exactly. Uh, you know, and they're using this one thing as an excuse to do it without putting it into its proper context. I mean, there are things that we're probably involved in today that maybe 100 years from now might be looked upon it with a great deal of consternation. But we're living in our own times and even in those times, Columbus did understand the humanity of, of natives. And, and Washington did understand the evils of slavery, which is why he uh, left a, he freed his slaves in his will. But the, the institution still existed. And uh, I think that mo the founding fathers really wanted to see it phased out over time. And, um, and it, would, you know, it, it eventually was. But... Um, I just think that with Columbus, the main attack on him is because he does represent the better things in Western understanding, like belief in, in God and like belief in property and, um, and in all the institutions, abstract and real, that were created by God. Yeah, look, I try to present it, uh, what I hope is an accurate balance of things that even today we would say went wrong back then and the things that we think actually went right. And I think you're exactly right. Now, the irony here is this. Columbus himself, at a certain point, when hundreds and even thousands of other Spaniards who weren't exactly angels started to come over to the New World, wrote back to, to uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, the kings of Spain at the, and queen of Spain at the time, and said to them, look, I need 60 Christian missionaries, not for the indigenous people, but to teach the Spaniards to be Christian." because there were, there were ne'er-do-wells who showed up in the New World, and we, we sure. recognize that, but he recognized it at the time. And the irony of this, the reason that I call this book Columbus and the Crisis of the West, is that the West has always understood, as you just said, that it's, it's even its own self-criticism comes out of the West. I mean, what, on what basis do we think that all human beings, whatever their race, color, religion, background, etc are deserving of respect and shouldn't be exploited. It comes out of our Judeo-Christian background. It exactly. Comes out of the Bible. There, there's right. no other civilization that believed this. And who stops slavery? Well, the Spaniards 
tried to do it and they couldn't control what was going on in the new world. But they did begin to set up some ideas of international law. And in my book, I go into this you know, in a, a, a way you can easily approach about how they, because they confronted these new people, they had to rethink, you know, how does this all work? How does it work in an international context? And what they did is pretty remarkable. But if we just even look historically, who puts an end to slavery? It's Westerners. Western, exactly. It's uh, the British, and Americans. Slavery. There's still slavery today. It's estimated there, there are is. slaves in the world. And then, of course, there's the modern form of slavery, which was implemented by the communists and the Nazis. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and that there is still chattel slavery in parts of Africa and Asia. Um, but the point is that the movement to abolish slavery was a Christian movement. We need to understand that. It was a realization that we're all created in the image of God, which comes right out of Genesis, you sure. know, that everyone has basic rights and that, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a Western movement. And it was very unique in the world at the time because slavery, again, was a standard international institution and had been. Although slavery in the Western Hemisphere was worse, I would suggest, than it was in, in Africa, in terms of like the massive level of it and the, the big plantations, I think that it was, you know, the Romans had slaves, but they were not, you know, that was their form of labor. I mean, they, the Greeks were brought in as slaves to teach their children philosophy. Um, you know, it wasn't like this chattel slavery, which basically they abolished when they destroyed Carthage. Uh, but, you know, it was so, so that should be noted. But there was no, I mean, Christopher Columbus, I mean, him and the um, Spanish conquistadors, I would say particularly uh, Cortez, they weren't involved with genocide. I mean, were they mass committing mass murders? Look, there are, there are Spanish historians who actually traveled with Cortez, and they read these accounts back in Spain of how they conquered and destroyed and killed and yeah, and they start laughing and they say, look, if we had found all the Aztecs bound in hand and foot, we wouldn't have had enough weapons to kill all these people that they're talking about. They're, the Cortez's band is about three or 400 people. That's about the maximum they ever were. And the way they were able to succeed is they actually promised freedom to other indigenous tribes that had been, um, had been enslaved by the Aztec empire. Yeah, which was extremely was brutal. Right. I mean, it was extremely brutal and had a religion of, of blood and did human sacrifice and all sorts of other things. Now, look, again, we go back to this point. What actually is the moving force behind this criticism that we have today? Ironically, the people who, who want to criticize a figure like Columbus or, or somebody else, they depended on the, ver on the very values that were brought over with Of course. Him. Yeah, they're, and, they're, and they're exercising those values with their free speech to do that criticism. And by the way, that is a, a value that would not exist in a society that they controlled, and it doesn't even exist in their own circles as right. they engage in so-called uh, cancel culture where they try to take uh, you know, the white out and put it on the page and wipe someone off the page as if they don't exist because they don't agree. So you, know, the, you have to take a look at, at from whence the criticism in this case is coming from Whereas legitimate criticism and ongoing discussion would be coming from people like yourself, where we do look at history and we do study, the, you know, what happened and what we can learn from it. There's no rosy, you know, we're not looking at Columbus with rose-colored glasses, but at the same time, we're not looking at him with an agenda to try to discredit and use him as a straw man to discredit 
Western civilizations and discredit the, the moral and ethical code of, of, um, of Christianity and of the West. I think the other element of realism in this is, is to say this. Those of us who believe in those Judeo-Christian values, the, all human beings are born in the image and likeness of God, also recognize that we're all imperfect. That we're all sinners, we're yes. all need of forgiveness. I mean, one, one of the things we really need in our society right now is a sense of imperfection and how we're all imperfect and we need to try to be uh, tolerant and respectful of one another, even when we're wrong. We, we need to find a way to get along with one another. That has sort of dropped out of the equation. And I would even say this, we're doing a disservice to indigenous peoples to try to hold them up as if they were living in a paradise, like they were back in the Garden of Eden. They were not. And anybody who begins to, to look into this history is going to very quickly become disillusioned, not only about Aztec human sacrifice, but about the perpetual warfare of tribes with one another, about the torture of captives, about the, the kidnapping of, of women from other tribes to balance out the, the demographics between different tribes. These are human beings in, in the pre-Columbian America, just as we were human beings, just as there were imperfections in Europe and Africa and China, there were here as well. And it, it's remarkable that what we've been able to do at least is to take what's best in our tradition and at least try to expand it so it includes as many peoples as possible. We're very sensitive now to racial and, and uh, in, uh, racial backgrounds and indigenous backgrounds. And it's right that we are because there, there are some problems that, that stem from our history. But let's just say that even in terms of, of black white relations, they were, I think, getting better and perhaps we're, we're as good as they had ever been in the country before we tried to racialize everything that, that's happening. I didn't, I'm not saying they were perfect. What I'm saying is we were at least working together. We were respectful for one another. We were striving to do some things, failing in certain ways, succeeding in other ways. We've elected a black man as president of the United States. No one in, in even just a few decades ago would have believed that that would have been possible. So we, we, the, 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 probably the deepest flaw in this, this canceling and this utter profound criticism of people in the past is that people today don't recognize their own imperfections, don't recognize what they owe to the past and what they need to do to, to in their own lives, begin to carry what's good forward. And to me, that's the most radical difficulty we're facing of all. Well, well that is the basic ethos of the... Um the whole left-wing enterprise going all the way back to the French Revolution, the perfectibility of humanity. They, we, we're going, they're going to overthrow God and, and create a perfect world, a utopia, a man-made utopia. Um, you know, it goes back to the sin of, of the Garden of Eden when, when Eve um, took the apple and, said, and, and fell for the uh, siren song of the serpent who said you could be as God. In other right. words, you can overthrow God in heaven and create... You can have everything. You can know all, you can know good and evil. And then when she brought Adam into it, it was the world's first conspiracy against God. Um, and, you know, they're carrying, right? I mean, they're carrying on this tradition and they believe in the perfectibility of man, obviously in a very convenient way, because if one of their own rank is imperfect, they cover that up. It's only to be used as a cudgel against their enemies, people who are standing up for individual identity and freedom. Uh, and morality and family and faith, you know, they use it as a cudgel to advance their very bizarre view of a perfect world, which is a one world ant colony. Uh, and and the, yeah, they, they have taken the high ground in American culture. 
You know, we, we can't dismiss the horrors of the history of slavery in this country and in the Western and in the West. It is a terrible history. But, um, you know, let's just say progress has been made. You know, I think that racism in this country, particularly since World War II, has waned to the point where today in America, to be a minority and to, be, to have ambition and to want to create your life, there has never been a better time. You know, there's, there's enormous opportunity. So this is why I think now they're using race as a weapon and they're taking out a microscope because you can't find real, very often, real old-fashioned racism anymore. You know, you're not going to say someone's not going to hire you because you're black, you know, or something like that. So they take out a microscope and they put someone under the microscope, only people that they oppose them, and they find it like a racist gene. You know, no, so-and-so was seen in 1959 in the hotel lobby with David Duke or something. You know, they'll, they'll, and then they'll destroy you and they'll wipe you out if you disagree. You know, and these are for trivialities. If you say something may be offensive. So, I mean, we all make mistakes, but that now has become racism. Racism is believing that someone is racially inferior to someone else. That isn't really happening anymore. So they're inventing it now and they're using it as a, as a cudgel, I think, in this election against Trump, which is ridiculous. And I think that uh, we can only hope that they don't get away with it. I mean, I think that African-Americans are waking up to it and realizing it's wrong and um, people of color and, and that we, we need to move beyond that. I mean, this is, uh, it's an agenda. It's, it's manufactured, actually. And the way we do that is not by demonizing people by groups. Whites are not all devils. There's some pretty bad white people in the world, and I'd be the first person to admit it. But whites are not all devils. Blacks are not all devils. All, all racial and ethnic groups uh, have uh, good and bad people there. As Solzhenitsyn brilliantly once said, that the line between good and evil passes through each individual human heart. And the great genius of, of a figure like Martin Luther King, for example, was to say, quite rightly, that he hoped that his children would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So when we, when we encounter one another, we don't say, ah, you know, I can't listen to you because you're white, you're, you're practicing white fragility, you're rejecting what I'm saying. What we have to say about one another is, you know, show me your humanity. Let's interact with one another and, and respect another, one another enough to talk like two human beings, or right? two different groups of human beings coming together. Instead, what we've done is we, we've we cherry-picked certain moments in history and tried to portray these things as somehow uh, a definition. You, I'm sure you're familiar with the 1619 Project at the New York Times, which is ridiculously trying to maintain that right. our country was founded in order to protect slavery. Oh, it's very, it's very subversive. Yeah. It's so preposterous that even left-wing historians have said, well, wait a minute, look, this is going a little bit too far. Yes, there were you know, some people who wanted to maintain the institution of chattel slavery, but the foundation of the country and the, the ongoing existence of the country was not meant solely for the purpose of, of propping up slavery. And, but, and we see more and more of this. And I think institutions, churches, corporations, families, individuals, um, local, local jurisdictions, states need to stand up to this blackmail. That's all it is really. It, it is preposterous, but it's blackmail that's based on, on no historical fact. And instead just intimidates these people because if you stand up to it, you're going to be canceled or you're or, going to, or, or you're going to you lose your off. career. I mean, I, I sympathize with college students, for example, in this culture. 
who, you know, you keep your head low. Your parents are spending 50 grand a year. You don't want to end up being, you know, attacked. And I mean, for example, at Tufts University, where I did a radio show for a while, they actually have like a, an anti-bias police department. You know, they're like the Gestapo. Somebody can call up and drop a dime on you and say, oh, this person said this and that. And you could be called in and you could be removed from the college. You could have a mark on your record. It could destroy your future, it could destroy your career. So, you know, I think young people internalize this and they keep their head low. You know, they may not agree or and many of them convince themselves that this kind of fascism is good and that they it, it, there are rewards, obviously, for it. You get to be invited to the fun parties and you get to be hang out with the beautiful people, you know, and there are punishments if you don't do it terrible punishments and people are held up for an auto da fe every right. so often to give an example for everyone else to stay in line. You know, we're talking subtle here. I'm not talking, I'm not claiming that we're like Nazi Germany or anything. It's not that bad, but this is a cultural phenomena. It's a subtle thing where you have to, now you have to come out and declare that black lives matter, which obviously they do matter, but the organization is a bunch of fascists. You know, you, you, so, you know, meanwhile, this organization is getting money pouring in from, from municipalities and businesses. God knows where the money goes. And it's corrupt, you know, and it's a, it's a classic form of, of a shakedown, as you say. Yeah. So. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, more and more people are becoming aware of this. I, I see even among liberal journalists that there's great fear. I see among college professors that they, they're, they will openly admit that they're terrified of their students because they know that the, that the slightest thing that they say that could be even interpreted as somehow uh, prejudicial can end their, their careers. But I think the, the backlash to this is growing more and more. And part of the, the solution is what I tried to do in my book, mm -hmm. which is to give us historical information. Look, you can take my book, go look at the references, go check out the, the histories. Don't go to Marxist historians about what the history of the West is, because they're going to already tell you that capitalism is bad and individualism is, has wrecked the West and that they have the answer. Of course, wherever Marxism has been tried, it's been an utter disaster and the of people course. have been basically living in a prison camp. But they keep thinking, well, that wasn't true Marxism. We're, now we're going to get to the real Marxism. Yeah, we'll think? do better next time. I mean, the Soviet Union and Stalin, he made mistakes. He wasn't pure enough. Right. And, but look, we've, we've got the, the truth on our side in this, and I, I invite anybody who wants to debate these issues, find out about them, look into a book like mine, look into someone else's books. Um, the, the truth is out there. I remember when I first got into this material in 1992, I, would, I gave many dozens of lectures on university campuses. You could still do that by, mm -hmm. back then, by the way. Right. But you even then, the, the, the faculties would come up to me afterward, or they'd take me out to dinner, and they would say, you know, we're glad you said that. We can't say it. But we can, I get that all the time. People yeah. say, Soto vote. You know, we agree with you, Charles. But don't tell anybody. You know, they, they, why don't you go up and, and do something? You know, they want me to put my neck out. You know, but look, so. we need to learn to treat one another well again. We all live together here in this wonderful country. It, it, it offers us tremendous opportunities, and we should help one another towards those things and not tear ourselves apart over what are essentially ideological fantasies. Uh, that's what we're, we're seeing acting out in, the, in, these, uh, these, in most of the, the riots. Protest is a different thing, but the rioting, 
the pulling down of statues looks to me to be very organized and had to have somehow oh, totally. planned ahead of time. And it's, it, 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 it grew to be sort of indiscriminate. I think they wanted to go immediately toward the uh, Southern statues because those were kind of easy. Then Columbus right. will start to get the Western civilization. And then we go on to- Now they're tearing down statues of Jesus Christ. You know, St. Louis and, uh, you know, in, in St. Louis, they were, they, they threatened that statue. I mean, it's becoming, you know, anyone who represents, uh, you know, Western society, anyone who represents a, an empowerment of the individual under God. Yeah. Here in Washington, I live outside of Washington. Uh, we have even now had a, have a, had a commission that was organized by Muriel Bowser, who's the mayor here. And they recommended that there be 1,300 monuments, statues, memorials, et cetera, removed, renamed, or recontextualized, as they say. And that even includes the Washington Monument and the, Jesuit, mm -hmm. the Jefferson Memorial. And there's even been some rumbling about Lincoln, because you know Lincoln at certain points thought maybe some Africans would like to go back. He'd help to set up Liberia, or he's thinking about helping set that up. So even he right. is not pure enough for anyone, only the woke who are walking around under the auspices of certain groups today are considered to be pure enough. It's a, it's a culture comp, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think we could make a list of statues of communists in this country who, who might be purged too. You know, so it depends on right which side of the fence you're working. Right. Um, but, uh, but going back, your book, um, again, is um, Columbus and the Crisis of the West. And I think that you, uh, you do nail the issue very well here. Um, Robert, tell me a little bit about, about, oh, one more thing I wanted to ask you about Columbus just briefly. Uh, was, do you think that, is there evidence that Columbus was a converso? Well, you know, so much has been said about Columbus. Um, everybody wants to own him. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants to own him. I, I think at the end of the day, he is still the weaver's son from Genoa. Uh, the, the best, I mean, everybody's tried to claim him, but the best story seems to be that Genoa, which was one of the major ports in the Mediterranean, like Venice, those two were the really large ports within the Mediterranean. Um, the, the Venetians tended to gravitate toward the east. That's why if you go to Venice and you go to St. Mark's Cathedral, it looks like an Eastern Orthodox church almost. It's got mosaics and it's, it's got an Eastern Christian feel to it. The Genoese were more Western oriented. And so they, they, there were a lot of them in Portugal, which is where Columbus kind of first went when he was seeking to do something larger. He married a Portuguese woman who was sort of lower nobility. And there's, there are all kinds of stories about, well, you know, are these converso groups? And then it's in Spain and you know, it's, it's hard to sort this stuff. It's out. a very complicated history yeah. there. I don't think you can, other than the, the, the large scale, um, facts about his life and we know that he sailed down uh, the coast of africa we think he was, went as far as iceland we know he was in greece other than that we don't have a huge number of facts about him as a human being but you know there are a lot of people in, in the past we don't have a, a large file about it as well so right. uh, almost anything is possible to believe about him that he was greek or jewish or portuguese or spanish or italian but i think he's a general and, and he was a, obviously a devout Catholic, even if he yeah. might have had converso parents or in a way similar to, um, to uh, de las Casas, who had converso parents, look, and, people, and Teresa yeah. of Avila. 
So they were devout Catholics and they were Christians. Look, people point to him and this idea of, of evangelizing as if that was just a cover for, you know, whatever else he wanted. No, to. I don't think so. He's very sincere. But we know, look, we know this. I, there's a fact. There's a fact. In his wills, after, I think, 1498, every one of his wills set aside some money from his, from, from his estate for a crusade to retake Jerusalem from the Muslims. He, he thought it was necessary for Christians to, to retake the Holy Land. He, he, he was looking for the second coming of Christ. He wanted the gospel to be preached to all nations, but he didn't just say that. He actually put some of his own money. Sure, uh, he, was a crusade, he was a crusader for, at the for, end. For, he put it aside for that purpose. So I think we can take it as at least established that that was a, a rather sincere goal on his part. And there you go. And it, it introduced, as we've talked about, the Christian faith and Christian culture to the West. Mexico is today, I think, the, the world's largest Catholic country. Um, Brazil. Brazil. Oh, Brazil is? Okay. But I know in Mexico, there was a very, it's quite famous in terms of a mass conversion to Christianity during, I think, Cortez's time um, in a country that had a very, very, you know, screwed up faith, by the way, under the Aztecs. And that it was a great uh, revelation and a great reform. It was a great advance for, for the world, actually. Um, so, uh, Robert, what, uh, tell, you, tell me a little bit about your institute um, today. What, what, are you, what are you people uh, focusing on? Well, well, look, we have that daily publication that you mentioned, thecatholicthing.org, which you can just go to all lowercase, thecatholicthing.org. And it's a daily, just a one column about you know, some cultural or political or religious question. Faith and Reason Institute, I started in 1999 after having been almost 20 years vice president for research at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, both places, Washington think tanks. And like all think tanks, we engage you know, cultural questions, political questions. We also focus on religious issues because religion and politics, religion and culture, as we know, um, is an important thing here in the United States, as it is not almost anywhere else in the developed world. We, we really do take seriously the idea that we've been endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. We don't think that we, our, our revolution is against God or is against the past. Our revolution is a revolution to restore what were God-given rights within a, uh, a system of law and order, limited government, etc. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we all write books. We appear on TV quite frequently. Uh, radio, uh, write magazine articles. Um, back when we could meet face to face, we used to organize conferences and debates and, and whatnot. All that. Well, you know, I, I really admire your work, and I, I'd like to call on you for, from time to time to talk a, on a lot of issues we couldn't even touch on. I, I'd like to. I mean, I, I consider myself to be a, a great friend of the Catholic Church, even though I'm Jewish and that I want to see the Catholic Church fly right in terms of its moral mission to the world. I've got some questions about that, about the present Pope. Um, I want to, uh, there's so many areas I'd like to get into, uh, oh, and I'd like to be in touch with you about that uh, to do some more programming. That'd be great. I'd, I'd enjoy that. All right, Robert. So the book, again, is Columbus and the Crisis of the West. Robert Royal is the author. The book's available at Amazon. Robert, do you want to mention any websites? Well, they should. All, they can also go to Sophia Institute Press, which uh, would, will get you quicker uh, action. Actually, SophiaInstitutePress.com, I think, is what it is. It's in, it's in uh, Nashua, New Hampshire, and they were a great outfit. I Wonderful. really enjoyed working with them. 
All right, Robert, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Good to be with you. All right.